0: podcast is brought to you by are you easily offended Does people having an opinion opposite of yours absolutely make your ass hurt when people shit on your favorite pop culture brands does it make you want to go postal do you feel the need to throw a fucking temper tantrum whenever people don't like the same things that you do If you answered yes to any or all of these questions, then the Cheeky Bastards podcast is most definitely not for you. So we highly suggest you grow the fuck up and go fuck yourself. On September 6th, 2022, if you're not some pearl clutching candy ass who needs to speak to a manager every time someone has a different opinion than yours, or if you're not some limp dick movie bro who gets queasy at the idea of somebody taking a shit on the films they also fucking did, then this just might be the podcast for you. So go grab a box of fucking tissues, grow a set of fucking nuts, and join us this fall for some hot takes that are guaranteed to chafe some fucking asses. A journey through time and space a journey filled with pop culture adulation and ultra hip monologues a journey filled with orgasmic soundtracks and unnerving violence a journey filled with sadistic miscreants and badass heroines a journey filled with devastating loss and unimaginable triumphs it's a journey filled with nerve jangling moments and breathtaking visuals it's a journey through the vast and ultra cool philography known as the Tarantino-verse but just how much of this universe do you truly know come with us as we take a deeper dive into the Tarantino cinematic universe so steal your mind and bolster your nerves because your journey begins now Welcome all you QT faithful to your 10th Tarantino Bible study, where each month we sit down and take an intense look at one of the major scenes from our movie of the month. I am your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, CEO of Scareflare Records and host of the Splatterhouse Podcast, Mr. Sean Wheeler. Together, we will be taking an inquisitive look at the gospel of Tarantino as we turn to the book of Death Proof, Chapter 16, The Diner Scene. Welcome, Mr. Wheeler, and may Tarantino be with you always. Amen. Welcome in. Welcome in. You are a guest, much like my friend, Steve Smith who became a fan of this podcast which really does blow my mind that people are fans of this I just I did it because of how big a fan I am of Tarantino but to have people actually you know really follow it and be fervent fans of it is Beyond my wildest dreams that anyone, most of my family members and my wife are probably like, who the fuck wants to listen to you talk about movies, and especially Tarantino? But it's, So it's nice to have some people out there who actually really do. So it legitimizes at least me being, as you're now seeing, in the murder basement and uh, talking to, <laughs> to people about movies. Yeah, I get mad because they're
1: so short, so...
0: <laughs> I always worry that that might be too long you know I, I don't want people to get bored and then also be like, "I oh, we get it yeah it, it, it's no, a our, it's fine line to walk it's hard
1: no like I just listened to your Jackie Brown one and you guys like I, I think I messaged you about it and said like it's probably your best one that you guys that I thought you guys did because you guys put so much light on parts of that movie that I had noticed and I wished you guys would have talked for another three hours about it because you only got through like a a quarter of the film
0: (laughs) yeah when i you know starting this podcast it was hard do we just like do we go beat by beat and then you know basically bore people like we're doing our own little video essay of it or do we just kind of like hit on the major themes or elements and sometimes i go like you know i know a lot of people know the movies by the time they're listening to this so sometimes i just like to find even little things like man why do they do this you know like treat it a lot like uh Clarence going out for pie after after watching a movie kind of sitting there and we're eating pie and We're we're talking about the film we just saw so I kind of like to lean it that way But I'm very much appreciative of your listenership and I mean you're a man of many many talents in the main uh, Podcast and I'll probably have already put it up by the time uh, We see it, but you sent me a beautiful duck head emblem from this movie, which I absolutely love you So you've created stuff like that you're the head of a record label, and you just started a podcast. Would you like to tell us a little
1: bit about both of those? So I'm a movie fanatic, have been since I was a little kid. Um, you see Pulp Fiction, a little butch sitting, that was me watching, you know, Dukes of Hazard and, you know, AWA Wrestling in Minnesota when I was a kid. And um, I talk people's ears off about this, about these subjects, like at work. I don't I don't know if it's a part of my mental illness or something that, you know, but um <laughs> And I wanted to do something to do with film. And I started doing enamel pins, unlicensed in small numbers and used that money to kind of go after my own label, which I collect vinyl and I'm like very passionate about vinyl film. And a lot of that was because of the Tarantino stuff where, I mean, he puts together these amazing, like just compilation records. And that was one of the things, the first record I ever bought was I have a death proof that's like a blood splatter that is first pressing that he did for it. It made me search out the other ones so like every time a new movie comes out i'll go find like the coolest pressing of it and it made me want to it, it kind of led where i started doing the horror records and everything and i'm like you know what? i can do this and i haven't announced it yet but i'll be announcing it here because by the time you do this like it'll be ready but i'm doing no august um, yeah i'm doing the grand duel which has never been out on vinyl um this year is its 50th anniversary the lee van cleef western and for tarantino fans it is the music in Kill Bill Volume One, under the origin of O Red, that sinister harmonica music is yeah. like resonates through the whole thing. And it's Luis Baklov who won an Academy Award for um piano, I think is the one that yeah, he won. I think four. so, yeah. So, and it's like the same people that did um like Good, Bad and the Ugly, the little lady singing from that. And so I mean, and that's a huge thing for me, even over. That's like I'm, awesome. doing George, I'm doing George I've doing George Night Riders, and I've got a couple other ones I haven't announced yet that are bigger ones, but that western is a huge thing for me so that's gonna be awesome yeah i mean i'm really excited about that like yeah we just did start the podcast me and a friend that we have differing opinions about so much horror films and that and so we're gonna go i know there's a ton of horror out there but like you listen to and everybody's like yeah this is great or everybody's like this sucks well he's picking one then i pick one and it's. Oh, stuff. yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, we're just going back and forth. Our first episode will be coming out. We'll be out by the time this hits. We did the Omen because nobody's done it. We couldn't find a podcast about it. And then we're doing The Gate with young Stephen Dorif in it. So, we have our list. Like, there's a bunch of them that people normally don't talk about. Hoping to do that full we'll one on Death Proof eventually.
0: Yeah. Oh, please do. Uh, like, uh, I, as you probably listened, the very f- when we started. You know the full podcast before this came. Watch Us or die. The very first episode was Death Proof, so this is coming out literally two years after we did it the first time, and obviously a lot different format. But podcasting is—I've said it before, I'll say it again—it's a great way to have two people just the love of talking film. I think that's why I enjoy them the most. You know, I enjoy the film ones. Is and I think we will make yours great. Is sometimes you do like conflicting, you know, opinions. You know, like I may do a season where I just have people come on who just don't like Tarantino, and see if I can't get them to just, you know, at least get their their reasons why and see if we can't uh, get him off the fence a little bit. But uh, exactly. yeah, it's, it's awesome. Well, good luck to you on both fronts and obviously we will continue to share anything you put out and uh, I will uh, put a little link to him and if you want to DM Mr. Mister Wheeler about some sweet movie memorabilia that he may or may not make, feel free to, uh, to give him a heads up on that.
1: I have some new uh, Tarantino stuff coming soon um, from *Inglorious Bastards*, as well as from *Once Upon a Time in Hollywood*. A bounty law pin that's coming very soon, Ooh. and uh, *Hugo* Hugo Stiglitz one as well. Which everybody's Ooh. making these unlicensed pins, so I'm like not that worried about it. I mean, come after me, they come after me, I guess.
0: I've always been a person. Any kind of press is good press. <laughs> I, I really do. I, if any, I mean, there's no such thing as bad press, especially when you're a small nobody. Like you know, if, if to make for Tarantino you to come say something to me about the podcast and shut it down or something. I mean, that would just be amazing. Yeah. I would, I would, I would well, be
1: uh, a fanboying all over the place. The rubber duck one that I made that you have there, it's the duck from Convoy that's, you know, it's like a side view of it. Yes, it's the Chris Christopherson it's, movie. It's, it's huge. Yeah, like I'm a huge fan of Death Proof, obviously. You know, to, like I, I was excited when you were like, oh, I got Death Proof available. like, I'll do it. <laughs> well, you'll be on again. I never tell people
0: who's going to be on when, So, but you will be on more than once. That's coming up. There's some other things that haven't been announced yet, so maybe by this time you're listening to it, you've already, I've already announced it on my socials, but I'm not going to give anything away just yet. But yes, we have more people coming up for doing other things. So cool stuff is still coming before this first season is put to bed. And now it's time to open your Tarantino Bibles to the book of Death Proof, chapter 16. I think this scene itself is almost bypassed and... Not even talked about in the fervency that it should, given what it is. So I think it was before we even we started to record when we were talking. You were talking about, Mr. Scorsese, and how much you love the movie Goodfellas. I, too, love, love Goodfellas. And, and Ray just
1: died. Yep. <laughs> I know,
0: and I'm going to say something that might offend some people and i apologize. If this is my opinion I do love The Godfather movies, they're classics that's not up for debate I however am a bigger fan of Goodfellas than I am of those movies I prefer Goodfellas over them it's just the style, uh, it may be also why I'm a huge Sopranos fan, but I prefer that part of the mafia storytelling than I do to The Godfather, still love The Godfather so I don't want people sending me hate mail and like what are you talking about? If you love The Godfather and it's your top movie, then feel free to have that, I just prefer Goodfellas. But the reason I bring that up is in Goodfellas, there's the famous one-take scene of Ray walking in through the Copacabana underneath and finally getting all the way up to the seats by the stage. It's a famous scene, and people talk about it all the time. If you go to film school or, God, if you've even heard of anything about the film and you're impressed with it, it's one of the things they always talk about It's this scene.
1: The Copacabana
0: scene. Well, Mr. Tarantino has his own Coba Cabana scene, although it's, you know, we don't track all the way in. Instead, we spend a significant amount of time with these ladies getting to know the second half of our final girls, as they call them in the horror genre. In fact, this scene comes in at a running time of eight minutes and seven seconds long. That's over five minutes longer than the aforementioned Coba Cabana scene from Goodfellas. And it's all done on a dolly track. He goes around the table back and forth between this. We have three conversations within this that are all very important, and it sets up the second half of this film and so many people don't talk about this i mean obviously there's the big talk about in kill bill which you've already heard about by the time you listen to this episode but when they're in the house of blue leaves the whole walking down the stairs following her all the way in the bathroom that that whole setup thing which is a phenomenal phenomenal shot and it took them a very long time to do but to me and i will ask your opinions this by far is his greatest one take and i think because of the great dialogue in the scene People don't realize that there's no cuts. They, they don't realize that they're, you know, moving with the camera and going around and listening to these three amazing stories by th- amazing actresses who have just amazing chemistry on scene together. But you kind of get lost in that. And then I think it gets lost in the vernacular of who Tarantino is, that people aren't trumpeting this scene more. You know, like when people say, oh, it's his worst movie. Well, OK, fine, if that's what you feel. But this has got to be one of his best scenes, especially for being one take and what he gets out of it,
1: and not only that, he's doing one take with like Zoe Bell. Is not she's not a full on actress at this point. She's no, something that did a few classes, from what I understand. Yeah. So when she nails everything, it's just like she's right on with everything. Right, and they're competing yeah. with, fit, you know. the the girls that are in there. Rosario Dawson, who's a great actress. Yes.
0: According to Zoe Bell, when her friend Quentin Tarantino told her she would be starring in the movie, she thought she would be just a featured extra. She caught on when she saw her name on the poster.
1: Yeah, when I saw this, I saw this film nine times in theaters. Uh, I sat through the whole Grindhouse experience. And when I sat through it, like I remember people getting up and walking out because of like, by the second time I went, there was already signs on the theater walking in. Like the film was supposed to look like that. And I had a picture of it for years. It's supposed to look the way that it does. It's not an error. And, you know, people didn't know what they were getting into at the time. And like, you know, so I remember the first time I went and saw it, theater was packed. It was half empty by the time I got to this scene. and. The scene, like, it didn't really resonate with me the first like five times. I think I watched the movie, and then like it, it sets up the rest of the movie so well that you know you, you find out Kim's got a gun, and you yep. find out about Zoe and you know her physical prowess, yeah. yeah, yeah. And they also give you, if you're not a car and film fanatic, about car films they give you like this history, a little bit of it, just enough so you know that this thing is supposed to be impressive. Yes, yes, agreed, do, yes, yes. You know? So it's just, and like, I think we were talking about it, I, I'd said it earlier when we were off, before you started recording that. you I mean, he doesn't put anything in here by mistake. Like no. even like the, we were talking about Gone in 60 Seconds, because he's a Nicolas Cage fan, like you pointed out, you know, like he, Pointed out as a Angelina Jolie film, not a Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> so, yeah, he he did yeah.
0: disparage him. He he could have said Nicolas Cage. More people would have known that it was Nicolas Cage than maybe even Angelina Jolie. And he decided to use her name and drag it through the mud and leave his friend Nicolas Cage out. Which you
1: know, anyone who's seen the movie knows it's a Nicolas Cage movie. And I like I I like the movie. There's things I like about it. I'm I yeah. grew up. My dad is a car film fanatic, and I grew up on the on. You know, car film, and that's one that I've seen. Probably, I had an original poster hanging like in my room forever for the original, and then that came out, and I remember taking my dad to be like, "The movie sucked," and I'm like, "Oh, it wasn't that bad," but you no, know, I guess I'll find anything positive on the Nicholas.
0: <laughs> well, like you're saying, this does set up the three main stories. That they're three stories, but they're so relevant, and he does a great job of setting us up breadcrumbs for what's to come without us realizing it. Uh, like you said. We learned through Abernathy talking that Zoe Bell is a specimen of physical prowess. Like, no matter what, she just se- can't seem to get hurt. Like, she falls in this fucking ditch. She knows the fucking ditch there. is there and she falls into the fucking ditch and doesn't get hurt, right? So, right off the bat, you know, we're already given some insight. Not only does Zoe do all her own stunts in this film, which to date, she has over 29 major motion picture or television credits as a stunt woman, but this was also her very first lead role in a major motion picture. She has gone on to play roles in Django Unchained, The Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. The Great Things We have no idea that that's going to come into play. Like, we should know. But it seems like this fun story because they're reminiscing about a time because they're bringing Mary Elizabeth uh, Weinstead's character in. Like, because she's the new girl in the bunch, right? So these three girls are friends, and they got this new friend that's a famous actress who just happens to want to hang out with them. So they're kind of just giving a little backstory about who their friend Zoe is because, you know, she hasn't worked with it yet. So we just think it's a fun little story. But, no, Tarantino wraps up important details by just giving us great dialogue. Then, you know, it's a great pass-off too because once we get to that story, Zoe then asks if Kim has a Roscoe which we find out is kind of a term they use in New Zealand for a gun. Now we find out that Kim has a gun which is going to, which again it's funny, until she ends up shooting Stuntman Mike later on the film, you forget forget. she has a gun I completely forgot she had a gun until I she's like Bang! Up until the release of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this film was the only Tarantino film where there were no deaths attributed to guns.
1: I just finished reading the script that they put out in book form, and there's actually a scene that he cut out where uh, Abernathy's trying to grab the gun while she's driving the car. Oh! And he he cut all that out. It's in the original script that, you know, she's trying to grab my gun, grab my gun, and she can't get, because she's got her foot all the way to the floor, you know, obviously driving like a maniac. So
0: I kind of like that they cut that out because I think the surprise of the remembering, oh shit, that's right, she had a gun. Really plays well at it's that It's a point. jump
1: moment, just like when De Niro shoots uh Bridget Fonda and Jackie Brown. You're like, yes, you don't even yes. you don't even really you're like, oh God.
0: Yep. Yeah. You it's a, you're
1: just like, oh shit, yeah. that's right. Because he's you no. Know, because you got stuff in my mind, like, ladies, that was a
0: lot of freedom, like, bang, and, he's fucking shot.
1: Well, and it, it because it's Kim, like the whole everything she says about having the gun and everything, like she it to me, she's the most likable <sighs> of the entire, you know, out of the yes. whole film. Like, she's so funny. As I've said,
0: I think Tracy Thomas, who is the actress's name, she embodies Samuel L. Jackson. I think she is a female Samuel L. Jackson. I don't think she was trying to be Samuel L. Jackson. So by no stretch of imagination, am I saying that (laughs) she was trying to, you know, act like him? I just feel like, She knew how to read these lines, how to deliver them. She knew how to play this character. And it just happened to be that it was almost like a synergy that she ended up becoming like a female embodiment of Samuel L. Jackson. And if you watch any behind-the-scenes stuff, Tarantino even says that. He goes, she was like a female Samuel L. Jackson. And I guarantee you, he wasn't like, well, I want you to read this like Sam would. He wouldn't disrespect an actor or actress like that. So just the fact that she turns into it is fucking amazing. Yeah,
1: and I'd read an, an interview with him where they were talking about the racism and stuff that Quentin brings in and he's like yeah he does bring that in but if you ever notice he says i'm a black man and i'm always when i walk in the room and a quentin tarantino movie as a character i'm the smartest person in the room and if you pay attention to that with him yes. even when she's trying to talk zoe down from doing the ship's mast stuff at the farm she's the most sensible and she's the smartest one in the room as well yes you know, everybody agreed. and everything mm-hmm. that's going on so yeah i mean he wrote all of the, all those girls are strong female characters. Again, both sections,
0: both sections of the film, even though obviously the first ones are supposed to be a little more dimwitted
1: and not know that they're in the jaws of this predator. But those girls are a little annoying to me when I watch the film. And as a slasher <laughs> fan, as a slasher fan, you have to have it's embedded in it's in the rules that they have to have, like, a couple characters, I guess, that are just, you're, like, hoping that they die while are watching the movie. <laughs> no, I agree. Yes, you're right. Yeah, I cannot stand the first group of girls. And I remember in the, in the film, and then you, like, I didn't know what was coming up, because I, I refused to watch trailers of any of his movies, and I had no idea what was coming up, and that car crash is like, holy awesome, like, good, they're not going to be in the last half of the
0: film. <laughs> yeah, oh, there's a complete turn in that last half of the film, for sure. Yep. And it really
1: is set up, I mean,
0: obviously, the scene's leading up to this, but this is this pivotal scene, because from this moment, we go to get the car, and then it's and then the chase is on, you know, from after this moment. So this is like that moment of, we get real great dialogue and those three great stories, but the camera works. So like you said, you know, when you watch it the first few times, it's that, just the amazing dialogue that always sucks you into a Tarantino movie, that sets his movies beyond all other movies. So people are always wondering, like, why do you like them so much? Is it the violence? He's got cool violence. He does a lot of cool things, the music and all that stuff, but it's those goddamn dialogue scenes that just fucking suck you in. Like, you just... The characters. It's amazing, because... You think of other movies that you like, you know, and especially in today's climate of movies, and I don't have anything against MCU movies or anything, it's like, I think everything has its place, you know, every all fandom should have their their time in the sun. But they have, they spend a lot of time in exposition and moving the story along, where a Tarantino movie doesn't do that. You get caught up in five, ten-minute scenes, and then you don't even realize you've been there for five to ten minutes listening to these people talk, because you're just so pulled in by the writing, and then obviously the, you know, the delivery by the actors and actresses that you just, you know, you don't realize time is going past you. And that's what I truly love.
1: One of your guests said that he's like, I could literally watch 24 hours of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I could have done that as a TV show and I would watch every episode like I did like The Sopranos or Breaking Bad. I I wanted to spend so much more time with those characters and find out. And then when he put the book out, I was just like, oh, thank God. And I was reading it and everything in there that he added was so much. And there's so many th- layers that were missing from the film, which I wish, like, I've heard rumors that he was thinking about doing that for some of the film to be able to do that. And I hope he does. Like, he's got the time. Yeah,
0: there's there's some talk. Yeah. But the camera work, as I was stating, is it's masterful. Um uh, because this is on a dolly track that goes around the table, so all the lighting's got to be properly placed above, because you don't get a chance. They've ND-filtered the windows, and for those of you who don't know what that means, is basically they put this like blue film over the windows that basically turns the windows into like sunglass effect. So like the blinding light of natural daylight doesn't just blow through the window. If you use your camera phone and have someone stand against the window in the bright of day and try to get a picture of them, the light is going to be absolutely blinding. Or, if you're able to focus on them, behind it's just going to be a whiteout. So... That's where they end it. So, it's such a well-designed shot in such a tight space. And the way the camera, and he moves around and back and forth, and sometimes he holds on a reaction shot while a person's talking that's, you know, like in front of the camera. He just knows which one he's going to pick and how he's going to do it. And yep. it's just masterful. And next time you folks get a chance to watch it, just watch the scene and just watch how well he does it. In fact, this was Tarantino's one and only time being the DP on one of his movies. Since Kill Bill, that role has usually been filled by Academy Award winner Robert Richardson.
1: The camera is always on the right person at the- the right time and if you watch it it's not like he's just circling them I mean it's almost like a shark it the camera never stops moving and it's always on whoever yes. it needs to be on and then I think the other part for the setups that you didn't mention was that in the background you got Kurt Russell I was about the to bar. get to him yep, yep. sorry no no you no it's good because yeah
0: we get him as we do our first pass when we go past Avery out there she's talking he's there and he gives us oh he looks over he does one look over the shoulder at them and then he turns back and then the funny thing is is Having seen it prior, and then I rewatched it like three times before we did this, but it was in those three times rewatching it, I realized I just in my head had remembered that he turned and looked at us. And after that, I was like, okay, I don't see him again. He's in the background for most of this yeah. talk, and I forget about him after he's looked at us. You know what like, I yep. I'm just like back, I'm just sucked back into the story of them talking that I forget yep. that that motherfucker's right fucking there. Like, that's the genius of also this, because as you said, as a slasher film, normally the slasher, the music tells us he may, that person may or may not be there. And then also they, it's a jump scare. Rarely is that person, you know, maybe in like uh, Mike Myers, you look out the window and he's out there and then they close the window and look out and he's gone. But
1: he is sitting there lurking the entire time, which I love. The beautiful part about that movie is, if you notice, and I'm going to go, I'm going to skip away from this scene and go back to the... Um, the Texas Chili Parlor scene. You don't hear any slasher music until she's out there and she sees the car because yes. he's really not he's really not the Yeah, he's not yes the, the car is the killer, yeah. it's the, you know, they've got the um Lucio Fulci um music that kicks in the from the giallo stuff and you know, that that's your cue that you're supposed to be scared. And then I think it happens again too at one point where you hear that music. Yeah, he's using the car and the music and Tandem together instead of with Stuntman Mike, which you see Stuntman Mike sitting at the bar eating food and he's stalking these people the whole yep. time. And then you see it again, and you're like, Oh. Mm-hmm. So I mean he's getting in real close, and you know, and then all of a sudden he's Ballsy. just gone. Yeah, yeah. Ballsy. Yeah, he's really and good. I love Kurt Russell in this world <sighs> So like, do I. It's you always ask, like, what's the you know, character you'd like to see uh, the moat, you know, like I-, I love to see the prequel. You know, to, to yes, what character. turned him into this? Like, what made him? Yeah, into this like, where did the car yeah. come from? You know, like, I, I would love to I see. Know. You know, but obviously, we'll never probably get that. But. No.
0: no, no, we probably won't. But probably because just like, you know, uh unlike the rest, like, you know, you know how Friday, you know, how everyone gets turned into what they become turned into. And sometimes it's just better. I think it leaves, like you said, well, you and I can imagine way more where we think it came from. And then Tarantino just leaves it up to us to figure it out for ourselves. I think that's a good leaving out nugget. You know what I mean? Just sometimes, yeah. hey, what's in, what's in the briefcase? you tell me, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like and you it, tell me what you think it is. And he and then, then run with it. Cause like, you know, my guest said, there's no way we could ever come up with something that's going to be as good as what we is, what we think is in the briefcase. So well,
1: yeah. In the a movie version of the Earl McGraw bird dog and that son of a bitch, wherever he goes, would just be <laughs> amazing. Yes. But yes. Obviously yes. we're not going to get that.
0: Because, no, Cause poor, poor Earl is actually gone from real yeah, life, which sucks. I mean, and, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I mean that, I, I don't know. Like I watched that movie now and it's like, God, I wish that he would do like you know just a half hour to explain you know how he got this way because it's a really fucked up problem to have, and the fact that Earl McGraw like goes in and just nails all of it, and then like it just the way all of it unfolds, and then when you get to this scene. It just it sets up the rest of the movie so well for what you yeah. get to see. So
0: No, I did this just is kind of like a it's just a off the cuff question for you. <laughs> because
1: it's part of when,
0: when they're talking about what movie they're in. Who do we think is starring in Three Kicks to the Head Part three? Whose film franchise do we think this is? Is this a Jean Claude Van Damme? Is this maybe No uh no. Jet Lee? <laughs> is this maybe Uh, Who who do we think, Sammy Ho, who do we think is starring in
1: Three Kicks to the Head Part 3? Part it's probably Jackie Chan in part one, and then like, yeah, somebody right? looks like Jackie Chan. By the it'll be like the Django movies where it's like no longer Franco Nero anymore, yeah. and it's somebody that looks just a little bit like him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just thought about those thing. it had three kicks of the head part there. I was like, is this like a cigar? I feel like this is like cigar, but he like someone else is doing the kicking because he can't get his foot up at all to kick anybody's head, unless everyone's laying on the ground, and he's kicking me in the head. But I just was like, well, I wonder who is in this three kicks to the head part. I mean, I just I love how they like, sometimes like you know they create. create little, little movies or little things that aren't real. And you just kind of go, Oh, I wonder what that would, what in the world of there, that really, that who's in that
1: movie. Yeah, exactly. And they said, they set up so much of that stuff, like with the little character names and the nods and stuff. He does like, I think the Cecil Evans was one of the car guys on the film. So, things like that.
0: Now, as we we're talking about the, with the camera and you were saying how it's always on the right people, the chemistry and acting for all these, and like you said, especially Zoe Belk being basically a brand new actress. I mean, she's been on sets before, but a lot of times she's doing all the stunts. So, she's never had to, you know, she doesn't have to do a whole lot of acting, so to speak. But these four ladies, and to do this in one take, for us to go through three different conversations, one, a funny look back at a past thing that happened to them, and then all of a sudden we talk about the gun, and that's a little bit more serious, but then kind of gets funny towards the end, and then we talk about what we're going to do here in America, and then we talk about the car stuff. Like, there's so many different moving pieces and people being the forefront and then not the forefront, and just even some people's, like, I mean, I think Mary Elizabeth has such great little, just moments, like, the whole <laughs> thing. Like, she thinks, like, oh, are you in the CIA? And she's, like, oh, I did Secret Service or whatever, and then it's, like, oh, I mean- like... <laughs> I like John Hughes movies Like like just a little thing she says Her little moments The timing is amazing Their chemistry is amazing And the acting job all four did Is superb Like I, yeah. we watched so many times Like I didn't you know Didn't find a false note A false step? I believed every single fucking moment of it. I felt like I was like, I was like, I'm sitting there listening to this conversation from the fucking the next table. And I'm just like sucked in. I shouldn't be listening to other people's stuff, but I
1: am like, they're more interesting than the the first set of girls where all the other girls are talking about is getting high and where they're going to drink and stuff. And, you know, and then like these girls, as soon as he sees them, I mean, the first time I saw it, they cut out a lot of, you know, I saw the grindhouse version of it. And then when it came out on DVD, I got to see the full on. You know, there's so many scenes that are different and like the way he touches her foot and everything when he walks by is really creepy and everything. Which, of course, because it's, (laughs) you know, Quentin, it's going to have, they're going to have the foot scene. Um, The way he sets it up and everything, like you actually care about the girls by the time they even get to the farm to get the, to get it. Because you're like, I would want to hang out with these four, you know?
0: Yes, absolutely. Yep.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to be a part of their friend group. You know, yeah. I want to be in their friend
0: group. I don't know. It doesn't seem like they have many men in the friend group. I want to be in the friend group. I don't know what to do. I want to be in their friend group because there's just it's such a it seems like such a great like I even want to work with them on set and do three kicks to the head part four like I want to be a part <laughs> of that fucking crew. I do it. I don't care
1: where it is. I wish he would get like. um the ch- Tracy back for another film. Me and, too. Um, yes, all of them. Yes, Rosario as well. Like she, uh, yes. I think she just did. I think she's doing Clerks Three. Like you know, I don't. I don't. Oh, I she's also show,
0: shooting Ashoka right now for Star Wars for Disney Plus. Her show mm-hmm. is coming up. Oh yeah, did she I shoot- know that. I'm not a Disney yeah, she Plus shoot- person. So. No, well, yeah, she's shooting her show for that now. Yeah. Now, when we get to Kim and the gun... It's such an amazing fucking talking about why she should own a gun. She just fucking nails it. Are you on Abernathy or Kim's side of women needing a gun debate? Which... which Where do you fall? Because they both make some good points, but who who do you side with? So,
1: we hadn't talked about that. Like, my degree is in law enforcement, of all things, for me to do. and have over. I'm all about, like... I think women have a right to protect themselves. I agree. They wanna, anybody does, but I think that it depends on the situation i guess but i also think that abernathy would have changed her tune completely a few hours later <laughs> you might you know, absolutely after... be right yeah so um i agree with kim like as long as it's you know a sane person that's got it
0: cuz abernathy thinks people have a gun and more likely to get shot with the gun i think she, i think yeah, it's, it's more true. of like she's worried that yeah skin, you've got I don't the want to gun give the skin rash yeah, yeah. <laughs> put him to sleep <laughs> Yep. <laughs> oh, it's so fucking good! Like every time when that whole delivery, I'm like, "That's fucking Samuel Jackson." Like if I close my eyes, I'm like, "That's Samuel Jackson." I do see Abernathy's point, but I also, with Kim. I also, men are like the, if we're not the number one, we're the number two killer of women. So I do totally understand why she feels the need, especially living in California where she probably does. She's probably in LA, but probably not in one of the more, you know, she's she's a stunt driver. I, nothing against that. But she's not living in the Beverly Hills. She's not living in the, the, the lavish part of, of LA. She's probably living in, you know, the, the tougher sections where, you know, where rent is cheaper, where she can actually afford to live. In a 2009 study done by the National Center for Biotechnology Information on the link between gun possession and gun assault, found that individuals who were in possession of a gun were nearly 4.5 times more likely to be shot in an assault than those not in possession of one. It also found that individuals who were in possession of a gun were 3.5 times more likely to be fatally shot in an assault than those not in possession of one. And in assaults where the victim had at least some chance to resist, individuals in possession of a gun were nearly 3 times more likely to be shot than those
1: not in possession of a gun. I just love the the dialogue that, that he manages to come up with for these, you know, like, you know, do your laundry at a better time in the day. And it's just like i w I'm gonna do my laundry with <laughs> a I know. She's you know? really she is I wrote that down as a like, note. Like she is just stubborn.
0: Like she's just like intensely being stubborn. It's just kinda like Hey, well, don't do your laundry in a minute. Uh, fuck that. I won't do it. I'm like, okay, I get it. But like, sometimes you're like, you're putting yourself in these own predicaments. You know, what I mean, like, sometimes there is a little bit of like, yeah, don't be just overly self-righteous. Like, you know, no one's gonna tell me what I can and can't do. Sometimes you do have to have a little bit of air uh, on the side of caution a few times, which was what I'm saying. Having yeah. the gun now gives her feels that like I'll do my laundry. on the fuck I want to do because I got a gun now. Which is where you might put yourself. A gun's great, but if there's three guys and then they have guns, now what?
1: You know, like the way that um the way that she puts her foot up on the table and with the check it out it, yeah it reminds me of Savini in From Dust Till Dawn when you know <laughs> the, the, the the penis the, gun the, thing pops yeah. down and it's just it's almost the same thing and it's uh, it's like but and she gets like you were saying like Samuel Jackson she does a Samuel Jackson laugh a few times and like I was almost expecting one there you know like yeah she, yeah the way she does it yeah. and it's it's not there because I think out of all of them she's more in control where you know like, yes. I would I would fuck with her so. no no and also it's a good little uh move in that part
0: where she puts her foot on the table we never see the gun you know she goes check it out bitch and we can't see cuz just the way the camera's set up it, it's not going to go down and up it just goes left right and it pushes in and pulls out but it does not you know uh tilt at all so we don't see the gun so well, that's another reason we probably forget about it cuz we actually never see it with our eyes until no. all of a sudden it's brandished and and there it
1: is Yeah, it's completely subtle the way that she does it and everything. And obviously, like, I think he didn't show it so that you would forget about it. So when she pops up in that scene, it's like, oh, damn, forgot she had a gun. Awesome. And she hit him. so. Of
0: Abernette, these choices that she gives her, which of these three choices is the more practical weapon for self-defense for ladies? The gun, a knife, or pepper spray? And as she said, you know, a knife I love, you know happens when people carry knives they get shot. I love yep. her little thing. I don't give a skin rash for the pepper spray, but which of the three are actually the more practical of self-defense weapons given circumstances? For instance, you have a wife, which one do you feel more comfortable if she had to have something for defense? Of those three, would you feel more comfortable with her being able to possibly help herself out of a tight situation? Obviously being you know, maybe aggressed by an unruly or drunk man trying to make moves. I'm not just talking like, you know, Uh. she's out in a bar fight, you know. She's she's in Three Kicks to the Head Part 9, you know.
1: My wife is a pugilist, I guess, with me being a Young Guns fan, so... She goes, old please tell me fist. she puts
0: the fist of just
1: like uh, that, uh, knuckles never, up underneath. I've never had to see my wife fight, but if if I did, <laughs> I think it would be a little bit of Charlie out of young guns, even with a little dance and everything after she knocks <laughs> it. Because I've, I've heard stories. My wife is from Arkansas. I've heard stories. So. <laughs> uh, so, so your wife's she's
0: just she's, she's bare knuckleball. She's fighting. She's fucking a motherfucker up with just her yeah, hands. I, I like that.
1: I mean, and she, I think she has Mason purse. So, yeah, I mean, it's where I, I live in Washington State. So, like, it, it's a little crazy out here on occasions. And, yeah, I mean, you almost need it. It's not
0: like, uh, what's that vampire movie? It's not like uh, with Edward well, like, and Bella. Yeah, it's not like
1: Twilight all the time out there. So, and my son goes to the Twilight School. No, no bullshit. No shit. Like the yep.
0: actual school that they they filmed at?
1: Yeah. The high school. Wow. The high school that they filmed that at is less than two miles from my house. Yep. Wow. So you are in Twilight Land. Yep. I'm also in Goonies Land and uh, Point oh, Break yes, Land out Go- here. Goonies. Um, Short Circuit Land. So. Wow.
0: Yeah. It, was it the new Point Break?
1: No, the. I live um, the original point break? I live about an hour from Astoria. So um the end of the first point break when Patrick Swayze's looking at the ocean and Keanu oh, Reeves so, comes up and throws a mask. That was So it's filmed. not
0: Australia. So they, they Australia was filmed in Washington. That's awesome. It's
1: actually filmed in Oregon. Those are in Oregon. I live like right on the border. So Gotcha. Um yeah, that's the Goonies Beach at the end of Point Break uh-huh. and um it's right below where the restaurant was and then kindergarten cop was filmed up there as well and you can go down to this beach and twilight was filmed at that beach 1941 um the the old spielberg movie there's a whole bunch of movies that have been filmed there so yeah. wow, i drove by you? the goonies house like maybe like 3 hours ago
0: oh that's just i, I was always hoping for a goonies too, but i guess i'm glad they didn't make a goonies too. it's probably best that we just I don't, I don't want leave to. it as goonies but just leave it as goonies yeah now There was a—and I caught this last night, and I don't know how I caught it last night. It was pure luck— And I have seen this movie so many times. And I think this was intentional. I do think, because, you know, this second half, as I said in the main podcast, the second half really pulls back on the homage he was doing to the Grindhouse style of movies. Like, in the first one, it's, you know, we've got the print scratch. We've got pops and clicks in the audio. We've got the dolly hitting a table and moving forward. Like, all kinds of things intentionally having, you know, clips are cut out. Yeah, everything is being fucked up intentionally. Now, we do get it a bit in the second half, but not as much. It's definitely pulled back. I think that was intentional. But when uh, Mary Elizabeth is talking, she's the girl who plays the <laughs> the great cheerleader. cheerleader. You can watch. So obviously as the camera's dialing back and forth on the track, there's a boom mic operator who's you know walking along with him to get the audio. You can see twice the boom mic shadow go over her head as it's repositioning itself. It's twice, and it's towards the end of... I, I'm trying to remember if it's during Zoe telling what she wants to do or if it's during Kim's explanation of why she needs a gun. But it's in there. So look towards the end of that. But you can see this little shadow go overhead twice. And that's the boom mic operator moving the boom over, which normally that wouldn't happen. No. Normally, but I think it's intentional.
1: I don't agree with you at all. I, I don't think that Tarantino would ever make this mistake. I think it's a ceiling fan that you're seeing in shadows. <laughs> all right. You know what? Okay. I'm, uh, how hey, dare you? That's say, fine. No, I like, I'm not saying never,
0: he made the mistake. I'm saying it's intentional. I'm saying it's one of those things because in those movies, you know, a lot of times, yeah. you know, they're low budget,
1: they're getting them done fast. You know, they're like, fuck it, we're going to keep this. Have you seen Black Dynamite? Yes, yes, I have. So, like, well, he'll go in, he, he gets mad and stands up where he wasn't, and he gets hit <laughs> in the head the like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, and that's a grindhouse movie. I don't care. To oh, absolutely. Sense. 100%. Like that would, 100%. You could. You could tie that with, you yeah, know. Yeah, it's a grindhouse exploitation, oh uh, my, 100%. And it would be a oh, great, yes. you know, like the, a great double bill. But First of all, Kung yeah. Fu
0: Also 2 is coming out. Just, I don't know if you, sorry. Maybe oh, I'm maybe jumping really? the gun. Yes. Kung Fu Also 2 has been announced. One of my favorite movies. One of my favorite foreign films of all time. Yes.
1: That guy could, could do three kicks to the head.
0: Yeah. Oh, yes. There we go. I like that. I like that. Yes. That he's three kicks to last... the head. I would go watch his Three Kicks to the Head part three. <laughs> I really it's would. It so, sounds so good. good. It does, but maybe it's like the Pai Mei thing. Maybe the three kicks, like you get three kicks and it's over. Like your head explodes. Like he's that good. He kicks you three times. <laughs> in the head, and you're just fucking toast. Your, head, your melon just bursts. Yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> so I found this out Kiwis actually don't like being called Aussies. So I read this in an article. I will put the article up. I will probably have like a little little blurb like I always do on this. It'll tell you where it came from. But yes, indeed, Australians are by comparison chalky white mass murderers. This is what some people interviewed from New Zealand said about it. One Kiwi explained, being called Australian is like being mistaken for your big brother who's a racist asshole. Like mistaking a Canadian for an American. He's your brother and you love him, but he's got bad habits and you're ashamed to call him your brother because he's giving your family a bad name. So even though they play it off, New Zealanders, also known as Kiwis, do not like to be called Aussies or from Australia. So a very just interesting thing that I was able to research.
1: Uh, Zoe, the other part of, like, he wrote her. It's exactly how she is. Like, I've seen a few interviews. And it's like, I think that she wouldn't really care, but he wrote it in there to just show how naive the cheerleader character is. Oh, yeah. No, it was a total play but there is some real validity to that statement, which oh, yeah, I absolutely totally. love the fact that that's in there. And he, he throws little things like that in there, like, I, I'm still wondering what the, you know, don't cry in front of the Mexicans, like the little <sighs> quotes that he throws in there that are like culture stuff. So you're...
0: I've learned some of the answers, and you probably heard on the podcast, so I can't get into it till December. I think I may have the answer for some of that, but I did say that Craig and Pat and I, we would get into that, we would have the answer for you in December when Once Upon a Time comes out. So I don't want to spoil it now, but I do think I have some of the answers for it.
1: I googled that after you were bringing it up i'm like this is a conspiracy (laughs) theory like this is like jfk all over again and like i'll be honest with you some of the
0: answers they're borderline like you go "Hmm, okay there's a lot being said there but yeah i'm looking forward to covering that
1: the first time i saw the movie i thought like they walked out and most of the car hops were all hispanic and he always makes a comment about every movie that he makes like going back to reservoir dogs nice guy eddie makes the comment about carlo in the car it's always like someone that's working you know even when they're doing the lancer episode Guy behind the bars, Mexican. He always makes comments like that. So I'm wondering if he was. I thought he was trying to make like make a joke about how it's always Hispanic people are doing the you know those types of jobs, and then you were like saying that. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's more to it than just that because I was already giggling about I it. You know.
0: But I do think, obviously, what like you're saying, I do think he does bring light to the fact that as a country, we rely on Hispanic labor yeah. more than we want to admit. And I think he through these scenes, he's throwing it in your face and saying like this this section of our population is a lot more important than you're giving it credit for, and you're shitting. A lot, so but yeah, we'll we'll get into it once a time. We're gonna really climb into it for sure. Absolutely, cannot wait. Awesome. (laughs) Now, during this discussion, well, I've said this a lot times. The one reason I love do the Bible studies is I will watch it three times. The first time is to take my notes. The second time is to see if there's anything I miss, and then the third time is just to kind of watch the background to really get into it. And this is the, of course, the second and third time I watch it, I finally notice that you can see stuntman Mike actually get up. And leave the restaurant He I, actually I, leaves in the yeah. background And, you know, again, like I said It's there, but if Tarantino's done his job Which he has done And you're sitting there watching this You will notice that you just kind of get sucked in And you're watching the main people talking You're so enamored by them You forget what's going on in the background We've talked about Holy. Pulp Fiction I've watched it a hundred times And Travolta's walking in the background And if you're paying attention for him and looking for him You'll find him. but a lot of times You forget he walks past Because you're just listening to that conversation Between Pumpkin and Honey Bunny And you just get you get lost in the in the magic of the dialogue
1: Yep, And I get lost on some of that stuff where I get so, like, locked in on what they're talking about. Like, I think I didn't notice it was Buscemi as the in Pulp Fiction until probably my third or fourth time watching it. And I'm like, God, that he sounds familiar. And then, I mean, at the time, Buscemi was just starting to come into his own a little bit. And it was pre-Fargo where he really was up front and center besides just being Mr. Pink. So, I and mean, it took a bit, you know, there's little things like that, I think, in every one of these movies where, you know, like um, another one, I just noticed. I, I didn't realize that one of the guys in the masks in Django Unchained during the KKK scene is it's Quentin yeah. in there. You know, like I didn't I didn't realize that until I'd probably seen the movie a few times. You know, so like that's his voice. Yep. <laughs> so they do talk about John Hughes movies. What's your favorite John Hughes movie? Oh my God, my favorite John Hughes movie. Um, probably it's gonna be Breakfast Club. Um, I have a special spot for sixteen candles. I re I found that film location and I laid in front of the house to take a picture, <laughs> like the drunk, like Long Duck Dong, yeah. and took that picture. And I, like they, I think they have that happen a lot. But yeah, the Breakfast Club is probably the first one that's I saw that connected with me growing up because I connected with all of those kids in a different way. Yeah,
0: I know what you mean.
1: So, yeah. And I think he wrote Great Outdoors, which he did. I, I he love. He,
0: uh, he wrote so many movies that you, yeah. like you don't realize. You know, he directed yeah. a ton, but he wrote a ton of movies. That are uh,
1: for the ones he wrote, like The Great Outdoors, is like you know that's yeah. my family. You know, just that, <laughs> that the whole thing. So yeah.
0: <laughs> so you got someone who got struck by lightning 666 times in the head, right? <laughs> yep. Oh God. God. In 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 the head. Of the three movies, of the three car movies that they talk about, which is your favorite? We talk about Vanishing Point, they bring up Dirty Mary Crazy Larry, and they talk about the original Gone in 60 Seconds. Which of those three would be your number one go-to?
1: Gone in 60 Seconds, 100 times out of 100 times. Are we talking about the remake or the original? Or both? The original, come on. Okay, all right, wait, I was making sure,
0: just making sure.
1: Oh, yeah, the original, like there's something special about that movie the way that he did it i thought that was the greatest car chase i'd ever seen until death proof came out and then like death proof holds it now for the rest of my life i don't think anybody's ever going to outdo that Death
0: proof. Yeah, I think the reason, uh, to clarify for even uh, the listeners, is it's beyond a car chase. It's basically a... They're doing a crash derby on the road, and we've got a live human being doing her own stunts on the hood of the fucking car. So, it, like, he takes so many elements. It's, yeah, it's a car chase, but it's also, they're smashing into each other at high speeds, and we've got a human being trying to stay on the hood of this car and not die, and not get fall off the hood, get crushed by the car, or go under the goddamn car and be killed. So, he adds such an element to that car chase that I think... And again, when people say this isn't his best, like I sometimes I wonder what people are fucking watching, like the shit that he that pulls, especially in the second half of the film or even the first the when
1: he hits him with the car, you know, he doesn't just kill him. I mean, he um, that book that I tagged you on on Facebook, that making of Grindhouse yeah. book, like they go into that and like they didn't pull any punches with any of it. There is the camera work on that, like when you're seeing them and it looks like they're going 80 miles an hour, it's 80 miles an hour. She's really on the hood of that car through 95% of that, where I think they used a dummy in one spot. The drivers that they used, I think Buddy Lee Hooker is like, I mean, he's been in every car chase movie that you can imagine.
0: In fact, Buddy Joe Hooker has over 200 stunt credits to his name, including such car films as White Lightning, White Line Fever, Days of Thunder, and Gone in 60 Seconds. I
1: don't remember the other guy's name. There's another, like, classic, you know, stuntman from Hollywood that he did for, that was in, they're all in, like, one scene where she's on the hood, he's driving, and it's the, the truck that goes around him, and they have a near miss, and he, like, I don't yeah. remember the guy's name but the whole the whole scene is just amazing but Gone in 60 Seconds I grew up with that that's my dad like I think he he saw it in the drive-in theaters 20 times what he says that and no, like American Graffiti and Hollywood Nights if you never heard of that movie go find it it's like American Graffiti but porky's version of it yeah so like I grew up on that stuff and the Gone in 60 Seconds has got a special spot I didn't see Dirty Mary and Crazy I I didn't see that one until like recently Because that's kind of hard to find.
0: The license plate on Stuntman Mike's 69 Dodge Charger, 938-DAN, is the same as the 69 Dodge Charger in the 1974 film Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, driven by Peter
1: Fonda. I actually like um, Tulane Blacktop is another one I really like for car chase movies that is out there. And Vanishing Point I did not like except for the car. I just, you know, I guess
0: I have, yeah, I've heard that, I've heard that a couple of times. People, people have that similar, similar comment that the movie's all right, but they really love the car part. You know, that's that's the yeah. where it comes.
1: And actually, the, my favorite car movie of all time is going to be John Carpenter's Christine. Like other than <laughs> yeah. that, Proof, probably yeah. Christine is just the stuff he did in that. I still don't know how he did all of the stuff he did in that movie.
0: Of the four muscle cars in this film, the Chevy Nova, the Dodge Charger, the Dodge Challenger, and the Ford Mustang, which would you want to own? If you could only own one. I, I love his the first one.
1: um, The one that he... The Chevy Nova? The, yeah. Um, I love that car, and I love that one. And When we saw this movie, I had a yellow Ford Focus. It was egg yolk yellow, and my brother put... The skull and crossbones on the hood when i moved out to washington the first time and like everyone was trying to race me with the damn thing this little <laughs> ford Fo- yellow ford focus with that on it <laughs> so and like i'm like i wish it was a nova i wish it was that car I wish yeah it was, you know and he's you know but yeah, I think that the person that ended up with that was Buddy the Hooker's son, and he graduated yes. from high school and still drives it around. I think it's who yes. owns
0: that one. Yeah, we talked about that in the main podcast. I don't think the kid deserves the fucking car, but whatever. Whatever. <laughs> Between fucking. that, or I
1: would, I guess if, <laughs> if I was going to drive something on the road to scare people, it'd either be that or the Jeepers Creepers van would be my next yeah.
0: choice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm with you. The Chevy Nova is, and it's got to have the, the rubber duck on, uh, hood on it. It's got uh, uh, yeah, to have. I do. I do.
1: However, I love the little pussy. uh, I was going to say my
0: next car would be the little pussy wagon just, and it has to have the sticker on, but I probably
1: paint it. But yeah. Oh yeah. That's that's the Ford Mustang from gone in 60 seconds. Yeah. It's such a beautiful car, but that, that first one he drives, I wouldn't want the inside to be the way that it is in, in the movie, but, yeah, it's very very cool car. I'd be doing car shows with it.
0: You don't like the the, the fact that they want the crushed red, the red leather with the yellow seams, like just like the pussy wagon oh, from no, I meant, um, the Nova. I wouldn't. Oh, want gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Like, yeah,
1: I wouldn't want the. Oh, you don't of want a death like, <laughs> No, no. I, I've got three. I got three kids, man. Like no, no, no death proof cars for me.
0: And that will do it for this month's Bible study. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Sean Whelan of the Splatterhouse Podcast, for joining me this month. I had an absolute blast shooting the shit with him about his love of horror movies and this amazing scene from Death Proof. Now, you can find the link to the Splatterhouse Podcast as well as the show's socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those can be found in the show notes as well. So be sure to join me again in two weeks as the duo from the podcast that nobody asked for, Ian Harries and Graham Jones, will join me to discuss Tarantino's revisionist history war film, Inglorious Bastards. So until then, this has been the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a Man with an Exceptional Beard production.